Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Bright Shift podcast. I am Leila, the founder of Bright Shift and your host on this podcast. For those of you who are not that familiar with Bright Shift, you can visit us at brightshift.co where we offer online therapy, workshops, and meditation sessions to both individuals and businesses. On this episode, we're going to talk about trauma and how it shows up in our relationships. Trauma is an inseparable part of the human experience. There is no way to avoid it. What matters the most is how we approach trauma. Joining me on this conversation is Nawar Surij, a senior integrative psychotherapist and a member of United Kingdom Council for Psychotherapy. Nawar's combination of deep knowledge in psychotherapy and background in neuroscience, in addition to years of experience in the field, has enabled her to become an outstanding psychotherapist, relationship expert, and speaker. Nawar, welcome to the Bright Shift podcast. I'm very glad to have you here with us today. I'm happy to be here too, Elena. So we're going to talk about how trauma can show up in our relationships. But before that, let's get a clear idea of what trauma is. So to begin with, I want to ask you how trauma is defined and why is it important to become familiar with what trauma is? Yes. Okay. Well, trauma essentially is an emotional response to an event. Okay. Uh, most of the time, this is obviously a horrible event. Um, so well, the reason why I'm saying that it's a response, because a lot of people confuse traumatic events with trauma. And it's not the same thing. So a car accident is a traumatic event, but trauma is our inability to move on after that traumatic event. So, so it's trauma people, our response? It is. So if two people got into an, a car accident, one was um, never um, was never able to drive again, and they get flashbacks whenever they are in the car, so that is a trauma. So if someone else recovered and was able to drive again, they did not develop trauma as a result of that traumatic event. Okay, and are all psychotherapists or psychologists able to treat trauma or does it require some additional special training? Uh, Well, I guess this actually depends on the the person, okay? Because different um, therapeutic approaches out there like body-focused therapy, uh, EMDR, which is eye movement, desensitization, uh, processing, CBT, integrative psychotherapy, these are all different modalities to train, uh, to treat trauma. Some therapists are not trained to treat trauma and some are. So we need to make sure that we do our research before we start therapy um, because it's such a delicate process. And obviously we, we need to make sure that we get it right. Yeah, so um, you kind of answered my next question, which was like, how can people make sure their mental health expert is 
trauma-informed and mm-hmm. can treat trauma. So should they just ask their um, mental health expert or should they look for some specific um, specialization? Yes, I think, Lena, first of all, they need to know what works for them because some people may not prefer the traditional therapy. Some people may prefer art therapy, for example, where um, the, the therapeutic environment is art-based. So they use activities. So it's very important that we educate ourselves, do some research about the different modalities out there to treat trauma and see what works for us. And by all means, check with um, the therapist, uh, their profile, their background, and to actually um, also make like an initial consultation, ask them all the questions we we have and see if we click, if, if this is someone I can work with. Mm-hmm. And so can art therapy heal um, like uh, severe trauma? It can, to be honest, because healing occurs in the therapeutic relationship, regardless of the modality. And this is what research is showing. So therefore, if they established a good therapeutic relationship, then there can be healing in that uh, relationship, regardless of what media is used or what modality is used. I see, really interesting. And uh, what are the signs of trauma? How does one know if they have developed trauma, the physical and psychological signs? Yes, Um, well, obviously, um, there are the basic signs that people are aware of, which is the um, flashbacks, the the panic attacks um but more important than that Leila is how trauma actually reshapes our brain so it can be so subtle to the extent that we don't even know that we are traumatized Uh, it can leave deep psychological injuries then it uh, forms our beliefs in a certain way and we may not even know that this is actually trauma. Uh, therefore, people, again, need to do their research if they are consistently feeling sad or they get triggered easily or they, they um, act out uh, certain uh, past events. So these are all signs of trauma. Mm-hmm. One of the basic signs is uh, dissociation, which is zoning out. So you will find um, people uh, saying, I'm fogging a while, I can't focus. So that's um, um, a sign. Anger outbursts. So they can actually feel so much angry in like um, their anger could be very disproportionate to the to the event, actually. Overreacting. They could, they're overreacting, difficulty with relationships which we'll speak about later on as well, flashbacks, um, distorted thinking patterns to regain control, suicidal ideation, fear, sadness, shame, confusion, numbness. Some people stop even feeling. So some people could fluctuate between feeling too much and feeling too little or not feeling at all guilt, um, difficulty concentrating, 
So these are all uh, typical signs of trauma. Mm -hmm. And um, is there like a time duration that uh, we should keep in mind, like if these symptoms are going on for more than a month or two, or the time doesn't matter? Um, I think the, the time does matter because sometimes we could react uh, to a certain situation appropriately, if you like, uh, if someone upset us or if we break up, it's okay, obviously, to experience these feelings and we need to grieve. Uh, but if they last and we are always triggered and we always um, fluctuate and we suffer from mood swings, then we need to reach out for help. I see. And so uh, how does trauma manifest itself in relationships? Yeah, I think that's the, <laughs> the $1 million question. Yeah. Uh, well, since trauma shapes our brain, and since relationships are wired in our brain, then trauma can inform our relationship choices. And if it's not resolved, we can keep repeating a pattern of dysfunctional relationships that are trying to heal itself through our repetition of the trauma. So um, it creates a certain pattern in our relationships. Um, and just to break it down, um, how does it affect our relationships in the beginning? What do you think, like the way we start relationships? Absolutely. So um, in, our, in our brain, Leila, there is what we call a blueprint of relationship. Everyone has that. And that blueprint equals home. So if home, the family of origin, was calm, relaxing, supportive to our emotional needs, then we will choose relationships based on that. It's not even a conscious process. We will unconsciously attract people who, who, were, uh, who are aligned with this uh, blueprint. In who would our create brain. the same environment, kind of? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yes. So, and, and obviously, if home was safe, then we develop what we call a secure attachment. Then in, from that attachment, we believe that uh, relationships is about giving and receiving. Um, we are able to support and be supported, love and be loved, etc. So we, it's not hard for us to attract people who are healthy for us. Whereas if that blueprint says that home is dysfunctional, so the feelings of home is, I'm not loved, I'm not validated, I'm not understood, then we are going to again unconsciously attract partners who will not meet our needs. Okay, so and does this also include the dynamics between the parents that we have observed for years? Do we tend to create that same kind of pattern in our relationships even unconsciously often? 
So that's a very good question. Actually, the dynamic may change because some people say, well, I consciously chose someone who's different from my father or who's different from my mother, yet they end up feeling the same. So what we repeat here is the unmet needs rather than the situation itself, if that makes sense. So we end up feeling home. So it's just so familiar to feel neglected. It's just so familiar to feel um, unimportant. Yes. So is it like sometimes we try to find the same pattern that was available at home and sometimes we try to find the opposite pattern? Yes. So what happens is um, there is a phenomenon called repetition compulsion that Freud talks about. Uh, He says that the repetition, the the compulsion to repeat trauma is stronger than the compulsion for sex, which means we unconsciously repeat traumas. And his explanation and so many theorists think that the reason why we repeat trauma is to gain mastery. Yes, so we want to master the situation this time. We would like to be in control. So our brain keeps representing us with these traumatic circumstances so that we can undo or resolve the initial trauma. But obviously, this doesn't work because if we choose people who are like our parents, we are going to end up with our emotional needs not being met. So we need to be aware again in therapy, uh, the the therapist will raise the client's awareness to this repetition and to explore it further. So it comes to the conscious mind so that the client is aware of what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And then speaking of home and the relationships so where does the relationship with siblings come to play because i think that kind of relationship also you know shaped our outlook on relationships it, it does because when we are growing up in in the same family with our siblings and parents each of us pos- position themselves in a certain place and, and we call this in, in unhealthy family dynamics, we call it the drama triangle. So there is the rescuer, the persecutor, and the victim. So in, in dysfunctional families, you see people position themselves in one of these edges of the triangle. So you see some, uh, some kids are the peacemakers, they rescue the situation, they want to please the aggressive parent, for example. And then you see others or the, the persecutors who just rebel and they are angry all the time. And they could even later on become the, the scapegoat of the family. And then you, feed, you see the victim, this, this could be a parent, oh, poor me. I'm in this situation, I sacrifice for you, and vice versa. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, really interesting, you know, it all uh, makes sense when you put it into that kind of perspective. And uh, obviously, I think all of this will have impact on how we end our relationships. Absolutely. And how we even, so if, if my familiar position then is a rescuer, then I am going to end up with someone and maintain the same position. 
And then how it comes to play uh, with regards to choosing our friends. So mm -hmm. what we discussed so far, we could uh, kind of, you know, apply it to romantic relationships. But how does it play with our friendships? 100%. Same, same thing. So two things that we, um, when it comes to um, relational trauma, there are two models that I use. One is this, the trauma triangle and trying to draw the client's awareness to where they position themselves. And the other thing is the, um, the transactional analysis model by Eric Byrne, which is the child, parent, adult. So that's a very important model because uh, these are ego states. So each one of us has a parent ego state, a child ego state, and an adult ego state. When we suffer trauma, our wounded child creates a huge child ego state. Then you will see people like that who will actually behave like children. They will, in the relationship, it will be like two kids fighting, okay? Uh, and, and some people develop uh, rescuers, for example, they will develop a, a, a huge parent ego state. Uh, they could literally be the, the parent for their partner, not their partner. Um, and But these are two unhealthy models. The healthier one, uh, the healthiest one is to foster an adult ego state which means the adult ego state believes about giving and receiving, no drama, uh, no emotions, is very logical. So it's one of trauma. the things that trauma does is, again, it defines um, our ego state and which one is bigger. And one of the goals of therapy is to help clients develop a higher or a bigger adult ego state so that we can run our relationships from that um, perspective. Okay, great way of explaining it. And I think uh, now it all makes sense why we often, you know, create the same patterns in our relationships or attract the same kind of people because I often yeah, <laughs> I often hear people complaining about why am I only you know attracting this kind of partners or Absolutely. this kind of friends mm -hmm. we can see why uh, exactly so uh, adding to this Leila so if someone for example has a huge um, parent ego state they are going to attract someone with a, high, a bigger child ego state because these two ego states in relationships they create what Eric Ben calls a transaction. So the relationship will be maintained because the child will never leave their parent and the parent will never abandon their child. So mm -hmm. you see someone stuck in a dysfunctional relationship from that parent ego state and they say, oh, I can never leave. I can't. My partner will not be able to survive without me. But who won't actually survive without someone? It's a child, mm -hmm. isn't it? Yes. Uh, is it like sometimes these roles change? Like sometimes you know that person is like a mature adult and then sometimes you look at them and they're in their 40s but they really act like a child so yeah that's an excellent question yes they do fluctuate we too tend 
to shift ego states. So for example, if your boss at work says to you, oh, can I have a word with you? And you're walking behind them to your office, you're automatically going to connect with your child ego state. And suddenly the boss is the parent, like, and you're walking behind them. But then with awareness, you can say, actually, why am I, why am I scared? Like we're both adults, like what's yeah. going on here? So it's very important to be aware of these ego states. And again, answering your questions about relationships, friendships. Yes, it's exactly the same. All relationships, we tend to maintain more or less uh, the same position unless our friend, for example, has a stronger, different ego state from us. So you would see people, um, for example, saying, oh, I am this with everyone except with this friend because that friend just changes that uh pattern or that dynamic, or dynamic. Them. exactly okay so uh i think it's important to mention that all of these um concepts they are also applied to our relationships at work for example as you mentioned when we are talking to our boss so the way we are communicating with our manager or with our boss can very much represent how we were treated at home by our parents. Does exactly. that make sense? It does, absolutely, yes. And so you have developed a five-hour interactive workshop around this topic, which is healing relationships that are affected by trauma. Um, and you have called it healing toxic relationships. Could you please tell us how that workshop can help people in regards to their toxic or broken relationships? And what can they expect from that workshop? Um, I think what they expect is to understand more about how we end up in these dysfunctional relationships in the first place. And I briefly mentioned today some of these dynamics, um, which will be explained in depth in the workshop. So we'll go through all the attachment aspect of it, the drama triangle, the parent, child, adult, ego state, just to really help the client understand where they are at and where their partner is or, or the friend or parent is. Um, so once we understand the, the theory of it, then we'll be able to help um, the participants to develop ways to heal these relationships. Okay, so they will first learn how to uh, realize and find these patterns and then how to kind of uh, treat them. Absolutely, because uh, the reason why we end up in these relationships Leila, is because we don't have the awareness. And a lot of people, again, maintain that victim position and they say, oh, well, um, it was chosen for me or it was a traditional marriage or I can't leave now. I have kids. So we went to challenge all these actually limiting beliefs and, and, and highlight the idea that all relationships are actually co-created. Okay. So uh, when you say that all relationships are co-created, how is that... Um defined for people who are, you know, um, in kind of abusive relationships, but they can't really leave. Because I know a lot of psychologists, especially in the West, um, very easily um, advise people to, you know, leave the relationship and things like that. But again, 
we know that also in the Middle East, a lot of people are, that's not the reality for them. They may be in the abusive relationships, but it may not be as easy for them to leave that relationship. 100%. I really get this, Leila, because yes, you're right. Uh, the Our Eastern culture cannot be applied by the Western philosophy. So that's why a therapist, Muslim Arab therapist, we need to develop our own models to deal with such situations. Absolutely. Uh, so in this case, um, we actually don't necessarily advise the client to move. And therapy is not about, about advice anyway, but we empower the client. So then the client is able to see how I contributed to this, how I co-created this situation to shift them from that victim mindset to an empowered place. And then when they are in that empowered place, they can, they can set firm boundaries, they can reach out for help and support. So they will stop the abuse in the abusive relationship, if you like, without having that's to beautiful. leave. Yes, yes, that's beautiful. So even though if they may not be able to leave that relationship, but they will be empowered and they will see much improvement in their life if they get the help that they need. So Absolutely. this uh, course, Healing Toxic Relationships, um, for any of our listeners, if you're interested, you can check out our website, brightshift.co and click on online classes and you can find it there to register. And so my next question is, uh, can we heal in relationships or can being in healthy relationships heal wounded parts of our psyche that have been affected by trauma? I love this question uh, because <laughs> it actually uh, reinforces my passion and, and belief that we can only actually heal in relationships. Because we are relational beings, we are innately relational. And as a relational psychotherapist, we believe, as I mentioned earlier, that healing occurs in the therapeutic relationship. So when the therapist is able to meet the client's unmet needs, the relational unmet needs, the need to be validated, to be heard, to be understood, to be seen. Um, so yes, we can only heal in relationships, Leila, but we have to be sure and we have to um, be careful actually not to get into um, some unhealthy situations because that could be uh, what we can call trauma bonding. Some people end up in relationships where it's so familiar and the relationship is so emotionally charged that they think this is love, this is healing, but you cannot heal in, uh, in uh, an unhealthy environment. If your needs are not met, you cannot heal. So you can't say I'm tolerating his behavior or because he loves me or I'm tolerating the abuse because he did a lot for me or he stood by me. Oh, yes. And if it's uh, that relationship, it's kind of similar to how it was at home. And if the home environment was kind of abusive and our current relationship is, ab is abusive as well, 
we may feel in our comfort zone. Exactly. It feels so familiar. Exactly. And then the reason why we want uh, some people say, I want to fix it. I want to work on it because that's they're They're hoping that through fixing this new relationship, they're going to fix and resolve their relationship with their parents. So they have even an, a deeper unconscious motive, actually. Mm-hmm. So a lot of these stuff are happening at the unconscious level. It seems like that. And how does our worldview change when we go through trauma? What does trauma do to our outlook on life? I, I, I'll tell you what it does. Uh, trauma makes us develop uh, certain beliefs. So if our relation and needs, again, are not met, as a child, we're going to interpret it, Leila, as I am not important. Um, I am not lovable. So these are called beliefs, limiting beliefs. So we are going, based on our dysfunctional and traumatic situation, we are going to develop unlimiting beliefs. Then based on these beliefs, so if I, if I believe I'm not important, then I'm going to feel terrible, feel sad, and then I'm going to behave in, in, a, in a certain way. I might, I might isolate from people and, um, and shield myself. So trauma changes the way we, we think and view the world. And based on that uh, view, we feel certain feelings of shame, sadness, frustration. And then based on, on those feelings, we behave in unhelpful ways, which is what the CBT model addresses, how our thoughts, uh, how our thoughts create our feelings and actions. Okay. And you mentioned basically because of what happened at home, we start to kind of develop this outlook towards life. But how about the traumas that are shaped in or they happen in our adulthood? Mm-hmm. Um, for example, we may have a, we may have had a relatively, you know, okay environment growing mm-hmm. up as a child. But then, you know, somewhere when we are in our 20s or 30s, something may happen. Yes. We may experience trauma. And that itself, again, it starts to change how we look at the world. So who do we become after that? That's an excellent question. If we, if we were lucky to have had that secure, safe, okayish childhood, then later adulthood traumas do not impact us in the same way because the security we we developed as children created what we call resilience. So yes, yeah, so that's why no, they will it will not affect us in the same way if we had we will bounce back from that later traumatic experience. I want to talk about uh, vulnerability and trauma a little bit. The popular culture is often encouraging us to be vulnerable and share our vulnerable side. But I think this often goes on without taking into consideration that many of our vulnerabilities are linked to the trauma or traumas that we have experienced. And therefore, I don't think encouraging people to be vulnerable all the time is the right thing to do. So can you tell us about the importance of talking about trauma in a safe and preferably therapeutic space? Yes. 
Absolutely, because um, if we spill out our traumas in public, then um, it's going to impact everyone. It's very contagious. So therefore, we need to own our stuff. We need to make sure, yes, we talk about it in a, in a safe environment. Um, and the reason why, because if we talk our, about our traumas, then we can end up feeling re-traumatized. We can relive so that. We can relive that. And even worse, live in it unconsciously. So I, I won't know that I'm actually reliving it. So just talking about it triggered me and I'm reliving it. And then I can go home and act out actually some of these traumas. That's why it's, it's really dangerous if it's not held in a safe space. We're not saying people should not uh, talk to their friends or confine in them or ask for support, yes, but they don't need to get into that. They, they can reach out for support in a healthy way. You know what? I'm struggling with something and I would like your support. And this support doesn't have to be about talking about the thing. It could be um, maybe going for a walk together or going for coffee together or um, starting hobby together. Why does it have to be about talking about the thing itself, especially if this person is not a professional, if they can't go and talk to the person who hurt you, if it's just for the sake of venting, then we need to be careful. Thank you for clarifying that because I think it helps us to, you know, adjust our expectations in our relationships. If someone doesn't want to share something with us, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're not honest with us. Exactly. Or... <laughs> That's actually a lot of people, Nella, say they feel like they're all people explanation, they're all people justification, but they're actually not. You can say, politely say, I actually don't want to talk about it. I actually don't feel like talking about it. And ask people how they would like to be supported rather than being intrusive and, and thinking that we can only be close if we share every intimate detail. Yeah, and I think that that can become an issue in some cultures where yes. nosiness is exactly, <laughs> Exactly, and they feel offended by not sharing. And that's something, again, we, we teach in the workshop about setting boundaries and when to say no and when politely. And the reason why, again, we feel we owe people explanation is because we feel rejection, essentially. So we want this person to stay close to us. And, and we think if we don't share all these details, they're going to leave us. Yeah, because also sharing obviously creates intimacy. That's, it does. Uh, for sure, that's the case. But then we need to just keep in mind that, you know. Um, to what extent? Yeah, exactly. And in mm. what settings? So how about our reaction to trauma? We know that one may go through a traumatic experience and doesn't necessarily become traumatized by it. Is there any info research available on why we react dif differently to trauma? Or in other words, do we know why some of us are more resilient in our response to trauma than others? Yes, absolutely. And uh, I think you, you actually answered the question partly, Leila, is that the reason why some people don't end up uh, feeling uh, or the trauma leaves um, lifelong scars is because of the resilience. And resilience is the capacity 
to recover quickly from a difficult situation, okay? Uh, and, and there are reasons why some people are more resilient, but it's not just one, it's a combination of factors. One is um, a genetic um, element, uh, and one is support, and this support can be by uh, friends and community, family, and having that uh, a strong, healthy relationship with parents, or any significant person, it could be a granddad or a grandmother or an aunt. Uh, culture or uh, spiritual beliefs is also one of the reasons why people are more resilient than others. Uh, a talent or a skill, um, that's also one of the reasons. And um, um, developing a, a tool of coping skills throughout life that we can draw from. So all these reasons combined can explain why some people are more resilient than others. However, the good news is um, there is uh, Harvard University, they did a research on, on resilience and they specifically um, tell us certain stuff that if we do them, we can become resilient, which I will share with you. We can get the conclusion that people who have a better support system and in general, they're, you know, they have better coping skills, either they've learned it or uh, they kind of train themselves to uh, learn some healthy coping uh, skills. And uh, people who have a strong spiritual connection, uh, all these categories, they have a better response uh, towards trauma or they're more resilient. And but, they can uh, overcome it quickly. And then uh, what about genetics? When you mentioned genetics, what do you exactly mean by genetics? Uh, some people, like, like, again, there isn't a straightforward answer to that, but um, the genetical factor and the physiological makeup of some people, it makes them just more resilient or less resilient. Mm, I see. Thank you for that answer. Um, so please tell me about the Harvard research findings. Yes. So they say, how can we build resilience? Okay. They said, number one, to have a positive, realistic outlook in life. Okay. So realistic means... Your, your dreams are not too unrealistic or what you aspire for in life is not. Because then if you don't achieve it, you can be uh, traumatized. Yeah. Um, number two, um, to have a high sense of what's right and what's wrong. And they call it a moral campus. So some, it's interesting because some people are very washy-washy with, with their beliefs. And actually, this research is saying, actually, if people have that moral campus, that can help them develop resilience. And number three is to believe in a greater power, whatever that is. It can be God, nature, whatever uh, the person believes in. Number four, a dedication to a meaningful cause and to have a sense of purpose. And the next one, to accept what they cannot change. And the last one is to have a good social support system. 
I see. So these are all the results of the research and they all make sense. Yes. So if we work on this, we can, even if we did not develop this resilience growing up because of our difficult childhood, we can actually build it in our system. So if we are experiencing trauma or if we have just experienced trauma, uh, we can start applying all these points that you have mentioned to overcome the trauma easier and quicker. And to avoid or to become stronger to be able to deal with further difficulties in life because life is difficult, as, as cliche as it may sound, but it is. So we need to build that resilience within us. So by starting practicing and implementing these uh, six um, points, then we'll hopefully be able to build Yeah, resilience. they can be looked at as also preventive methods, really. Um, for whenever we need them. Uh, but before I jump to the next question, I just want to ask you, um, what happens to us? Can you explain this briefly? What happens to us if we don't treat trauma? Well, which is the majority of people, <laughs> <laughs> we uh, live life from um, a set of defense mechanisms. Uh, and you can also call them masks, social masks. So we develop very strong defenses that we implement on a daily basis. For example, avoidance. So we never talk about what happened to us. We don't address our feelings, honestly. Uh, we isolate. We don't reach out for help. We can intellectualize what happened to us and you say you know what I had a brilliant childhood my parents were amazing I don't know why I'm in a dysfunctional relationship that's very strange <laughs> so denial so all these defenses and which what you see people around you who haven't done the work and resolve their traumas living their life uh, so. yes and I think there is also a clinical aspect of it uh, what it does to our body and um a lot of other issues which um, we will perhaps discuss in another episode and uh, there is a famous quote from Peter Levine which says the paradox of trauma is that it has both the power to destroy and the power to transform and resurrect so it seems that how we approach trauma can make all the difference in who we become after that being said could you talk about post-traumatic growth and the opportunities of transformation that come about after trauma. Yes, I love this quote, yes. And, and obviously uh, post-traumatic growth is the definition of it. It's the positive mental shift as a result of a trauma, okay? Um, we, we're not saying that um, we need to go through trauma or that trauma is not destructive. So we need to bear in mind that trauma is destructive. However, there, there could be that um, shift that could happen to us as a result of our trauma if we resolve it, if we work on it, if we have the resilience. Over time, we can develop maturity. We can develop cognitive complex processes. So we can understand and deal with things in, in, in more depth. 
And number three, we can be happier. And, and number four, we can actually change our perception of life completely. We can uh, change our meaning of life. So we can have a complete um, a radical change in, in our meaning in life. And we can re-examine our life purpose as well. It can transform us uh, completely. And I think, it can. yes, if we manage to, uh, you know, kind of treat that experience, that trauma, um, I believe the majority of times we will, we will be transformed to better human beings. Yes, absolutely. And it will increase our self-esteem. We develop what we call like a deeper inner wisdom. Absolutely. And uh, I'm not sure if we discussed this or not, but um, in case there is some misconceptions about what a trauma is, you know, a trauma is not only the, uh, you know, a big events such as like earthquake, wars, mm -hmm. or things like that. Um, anything small that we don't have the capacity to uh respond to in a healthy way is considered as trauma right absolutely and you are right absolutely right this is one of the misconceptions people think like i'm only traumatized if my house was set on fire or if we had a car accident and everyone died except me it can be as as severe as that but it can be as just the inability to move on from any loss can you give us an example of you know, few of the traumas that we may be experiencing on daily basis. Um, not moving on from something like if we are constantly triggered by something that is a trauma. So, for example, if um, if my um, my pet died and I did not grieve, then that is a trauma. So, so many things, if I lost something I like, anything, anything could be a trauma, as I said, if I did not overcome the triggers that always um, happen when I remember, whether it's consciously or when, I, when I'm reminded unconsciously. So to avoid, um, to be able to um, develop this and get to this post-traumatic growth, we need to grieve. And that's something a lot of us, because of our cultures and, and how it's not good to share emotions and how we shouldn't cry, we shouldn't be angry, we shouldn't be sad, we don't end up grieving a lot of the losses. And without that, we will not uh, be able to dissolve the traumas. Wow, so that is such a great point. In order for the post-traumatic growth to happen, you mentioned that we need to go through that grief process absolutely yes and we cannot avoid it and a lot of us again with our strong coping strategies distraction moving on quickly getting another partner when i ended and all these things are actually what the majority of us do and and something another misconception of trauma also leila is that trauma scars us forever that there is no healing. And actually, people think that because I can I cannot 
undo what happened to me, therefore I'm scarred for life. Uh, but that's not the case. We can heal the trauma, even though we cannot undo the events. Yeah, absolutely. And so generally, what do you think some of the biggest misconceptions are when it comes to trauma that people should know more about? Yes, and I think you did start uh, this aspect in, in, in like two minutes ago when, when you started talking about uh, these misconceptions, you asked me what's um, one of them is it has to be something really great and big. And I just added to it. Yes, that is one of the misconceptions that trauma has to be a huge event. And the second misconception is that we can never hear from it because we cannot change the past. Thanks very much, Nawar, for being here today. I really admire your approach in therapy and learn a lot from you anytime that we have a conversation. Thank you, Leila. It's lovely always talking to you. It's very enriching. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been really great. Thanks for listening to this episode. This week was Mental Health Awareness Week. And in that light, on the top of the mental health support services that we offer to individuals, I would like to encourage you to become more familiar with the services that we offer to workplaces and organizations. There are a variety of services that we offer to workplaces, such as our leadership training programs, our customized workshops, online therapy, and more. We truly believe that empowering workplaces with the right mental health support can play a significant role in enhancing the well-being of society as a whole. I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode. Thanks for being here and see you next time.